0: Okay. No, no, it's a
1: today. We're doing something special on the Steps Forward with Ricky podcast. I wanted to always bring new ideas and strategies to my audience. And as I evolve as a person and entrepreneur, I like to bring people on that are inspiring and engaging. So today I'm having my first guest, and we're starting with some big guests. So I don't know if anyone's gonna be able to live up to them, but you know, it will we'll figure that out introducing Dr. Eric Collins, the medical director, and Jeffrey Go- if so I probably butchered that. i um, the clinical director at the New York Center for Living. The New York Center for Living specializes in treatments of adolescent and young adults who live with addiction and located in Manhattan. And honestly, today, I just want to have a real genuine conversation about addiction, about treatment, and really get a different perspective. My perspective is someone who's lived it, someone who's experienced it. And we all have different perspectives when it comes to this sometimes controversial topic. And I think that there is a lot of different things around it. And so I just want to have a real conversation with the two of you and welcome to the show.
2: Thank Thank you you. for having
1: us. Yeah. So um, I don't know who wants to go first, but maybe you can just give us a little background of who you are and how did you even get into this space and why did you get into this space? Um, Jeffrey, Eric, whoever wants to go first.
2: Go ahead, Jeffrey. Sure. <laughs> um so Jeffrey Golia, you were very close with the last name. Oh, sorry. I know, and and but and I'm and I was as of very recently the clinical director of now I've transitioned to Director of clinical outreach and education, um, which is more of an externally facing role. Um, I like to say evangelizing about our program and the work that we do to support young people and families, um, and a lot of parent education as well. Shorthand. I kind of backed into this a little bit. I was working in prison reentry for about ten years um, wow. uh, as a as a, a direct practitioner, and then eventually as a nonprofit executive and decided I wanted to switch gears, and I ended up um, working at a residential program that served uh, young people with both substance use disorder and mental health issues. Um, and um, through that experience, residentially, um, I got acquainted with the New York Center for Living, which is an outpatient program that serves 13 to 30-year-old young people and their families with substance use disorders, and uh, made that transition. And 15 months later, um, you know, now moving into this role in which I get to share all the great work that we do Um, but I just, I've always had a passion for helping young people achieve success in their lives and whatever barriers they had to sort of help to facilitate their growth in that context. And, um, and so I'm blessed to be here now and, and working with Dr. Collins.
1: That's amazing. Thank you, Dr. Collins. uh,
2: Thanks, Ricky. Uh, I went to medical
0: school a long time ago in the eighties and when I was on the medical service uh, many years ago, I was struck by how many people. Oh,
1: wait, I think it just. Sorry, I don't know why it froze.
2: I is suspect, it me? I, I suspect it might be him in a Wi-Fi issue, so we can fix <laughs> this in post. I'm going to I'll text him, though. About
0: oh, that. There it is. You're right. back. Hey, Eric, you're, you're back
2: now. You got to I, start that over
0: again. <laughs> I know, I'm so sorry. I realized you guys weren't moving. Um, yeah, no. And I thought, uh-oh, they're not hearing me. Well, anyway, <laughs> it goes back. Basically, my interest in working with people with challenges with substance use started really during medical school, went on uh, my medicine rotations. I was struck by how many people at that time with AIDS uh, in the late 80s when there weren't treatments for AIDS uh, and and other illnesses, hepatitis, uh, and, and endocarditis, that's an infection of the heart valves. I was really struck by how many people were in the hospital with, um, alcohol and, and substance use related problems. So the alcohol problems were liver disease and, uh, you know, bleeding and stomach ulcers, you know, lots of liver problems, but, um, so yeah, so I, uh, I was interested and I, uh got interested actually i had been somewhat interested prior to that during college uh when a good friend of mine after her freshman year in college went into recovery you know she started attending aa meetings and i used to go with her to some of her anniversary meetings so i got you know i got into that and then uh i decided to become a psychiatrist uh because i really liked hearing people's stories and then i wanted to work in the addiction field and I've loved the work. A lot of people, you know, like you, Ricky, find a way one way or another, there's no one size fits all, but a lot of people find one way or another to get to maintenance of long-term sobriety. And for people who don't want that, some get to a point of, of much more safe or much less unsafe use. And, you know, they do well with that. So, you know, people can change and although it's hard, And this illness does kill, you know, all too many people, of course. Um, I've found the work very rewarding. And it's nice to work at the Center for Living where we help young people. And, uh, you know, once they turn their lives around, most of them have a completely normal and happy life. Um, The illness can relapse, but once they've gone into long-term recovery, it's often relatively easy to go back into recovery right so i like to work
1: do you think addiction is a disease for everybody
0: huh well yeah that's an interesting question that's a that's a controversial topic um no
1: a little controversial yeah Yeah, (laughs) that's
0: fine i'm good with that um I mean, because at least we're talking about it and we can agree, even if we disagree, we can agree that we'll disagree. Um, So let me start by saying with every substance that people can develop a a problem or an addiction to, the majority of people don't. They either don't like it that much or they like it, but it just never gets in their way, never causes problems, it never causes distress or impairs the way they function. Um, for the people who develop addiction, it does make sense to me to call it a disease or an illness. Uh, you know, when I look up the definition of an illness, it it's easy to fit addiction into that. Uh, so for the roughly 10 or 15% of the population that develops an addiction of some type, I do think of it as a disease. And part of that is that more and more, we've got medical treatments that can make a difference. And so, you know, I I'm a physician. I trained in the medical model, the disease model, and I'm interested in, in helping people find medications that can help not just medications. I love 12 step. I think people can work with 12 step. I love, cognitive behavioral therapies for addiction. As I said, there's no one size fits all. Everybody yeah. has a different path. Um, all those approaches still for me fit into the medical model or the disease model of addiction. So that, that's a long-winded answer to say, yes, I do think it's a disease for the people who have the disease and the majority yeah. of people never develop the disease.
1: And I think we can agree that there's all like, if you just think about diseases, there are cures for diseases. So I think Not that- always.
0: There are lots Not of diseases for which there right. is no cure, yeah. and I That's don't think it's a cure for addiction.
2: Yeah.
0: I don't think so. Haven't haven't encountered a cure. The way I, I guess it's cure.
1: individual. I guess somebody could say I. I, I think just def- I personally feel like it depends the level of the addiction, probably also what you use, what you're addicted to. Um, mm-hmm. Jeffrey, what do you think? Well, you know, yeah, if I can add it,
2: and and you know, and I I tend to agree with Dr. With Collins on a lot of things, um, including that point. I also think that the way that we conceptualize and people conceptualize their own issues is really important, right? And so when engaging in a therapeutic relationship, um, for a lot of folks, conceptualizing it as a disease um can be destigmatizing, um, can be helpful for them in terms of saying, a disease, ergo, there's a treatment, ergo, there's a way forward here, right? And you sort of can can live with that, um, and um, and and sort of you know, um, grow and, and and thrive in that context. And so, I think part of what we're trying to do is always find ways, especially for young people, to be able to conceptualize their issue in a way that um, allows them to um, accept and then and then and then engage in treatment and then move forward. And, um, and that for me, I think has, has always been key. So how do we sort of understand um, the different rhetoric um, and the different monikers around that? But there's um, another key point is about that destigmatization, right? That people struggle with substance use issues. Um, a huge barrier is being open and honest with oneself because you're facing a social environment um, that stigmatizes that and says that you're bad and you're mo- immoral, right? And we say substance use is not a moral failing. Sometimes we don't act well towards ourselves and other people in active use. And that's one reason that we should seek recovery and seek assistance. So anything we can do to conceptualize it in a way that allows people to step into their treatment and own that treatment and build motivation towards their own recovery, right, is, you know, is going to be the the, the work, so to speak.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I've always, what?
0: Well, I was just going to add to that. I totally agree with that, the idea that, the disease model for many people destigmatizes it and changes it from a moral failing. That said, which is the way some people view it. That said, uh, you know sometimes the disease model or the idea of a disease, addiction as disease, feels stigmatizing. And it Yeah, I was for that's just both saying. ways. Oh, okay, we're on the same page. I mean, yeah. I, I I get that, but yeah. yeah,
1: it's uh kind of reminds me of. So I'm ADHD. Um, I was diagnosed with ADHD when I was seven years old. I was put on Adderall when I was seven years old and I was on it for 28 years. Yeah. I just got off it six months ago. Um, well, after,
0: that.
1: thank you. I was on 80 to hundred milligrams a day, which is substantial. Yeah. It's a big dose for, you know, just anybody. But, um, and I was, I, there's a stigma with being ADHD, like, you are this, right? Like you need this treatment, you need this medicine, you can't focus. You're essentially someone saying like, you're different here, if, if you're so different, here's something that makes you less different. And everyone's different in that diagnosis. I would say that they consider ADHD to be a disease or a mental disorder, whatever whatever they categorize it as. For me, it really became this thing that I didn't understand my brain. And because I had no one educating me about my brain, I just thought that I was an addict because I was addicted to everything. It made me so stimulated that I craved so much dopamine. Now, everyone's different. Um, and I only say this because I believe that if I was taught about my brain and I was educated about it and I understood what was different about me and what dopamine and the nervous system and all these different things, I truly believe that I could have learned to live with my ADHD. And I think I could have categorized myself differently. And so I think that there is this stigma of like, you are, you have a disease, you have this problem, you are an addict, here's the solution. And I think what I've learned is everyone's different, but education's always wins, right? Like, educating someone about their brain, educating someone about the nervous system, educating someone about trauma is always for me the first step because at least that person can have the knowledge and the power to be like, yeah, do I want to go this route? Or am I really an addict? Or am I just like super low of dopamine? Am I really an addict? Or did like, you know, for me, my mom died when I was 13. So I can't imagine that didn't play a role in my addictions. And some people are just more prone to addiction. Right, like I'm sure you have research on people that are ADHD that are just more prone to addiction because they just need yeah. that high. But to me, that's not necessarily because they're they have an illness. That's just because like they have a deficiency. And I just feel like I might be a little controversial in what I think. Um, and I think it's only because I I've, I've like was that kid. I was like that kid who was like, you can't sit still. Take this medication. You're different. Like you have a problem. And so I'm a little, I think maybe I'm more sensitive to it. Um, and I think as a kid, kids are sensitive to what they get labeled, to what they get called. And um, totally. for some kids, for some kids it's helpful for some kids. It's like, but wait, I don't want to be different. And this makes me more different. Now, now I'm this. So um, that's why I asked. Cause it's so, it's interesting to hear different perspectives.
0: Sure. No, I think that's a great point. And the, the interesting thing is this question about ADD and, and addiction. It's been looked at pretty widely, and you're right. People with ADHD or ADD, if they don't have the hyperactive component, yeah. so much, they are more prone to developing an addiction than the general population. The interesting thing is they're all, as a group, you know, on average, the chances are higher. They develop people with ADD or ADHD develop addiction. They um, are somewhat less likely within the group if they get treated with stimulants to develop addiction than if they don't. But they're still more likely than the general population. And, you know, stimulants make it a little less likely. It's not even 100% clear that the stimulants chemically make that difference. It might be other variables that determine to even just access to medical care. You know, it could be that people with access to medical care are, are, you know, have, I don't know, more available and, you know, interested parents. I mean, I'm making that up. It's a bit extreme, but, but I mean, yeah. there are variables that might account for that observed difference when you treat the ADD with a stimulant, it's, it's less likely to produce addiction than if you don't treat the ADD. It might have nothing to do with the stimulant treatment directly at all. It might have to do with the other variables that make you likely to get stimulant treatment. Um, also, I'll just say, yeah. Unfortunately, in this country, there is a gigantic market for stimulants, Adderall and all related products, as performance enhancers. I know. Who doesn't want their kid to get ahead? So people who you know have a very severe case of ADD or ADHD are lumped in with a whole lot of people who get these stimulants because they can bring their kid to a psychiatrist who will prescribe. And and I think the system way over prescribes stimulants, for sure. You know? I mean, sure.
1: Yeah. So I was addicted to marijuana for 10 plus years. Like I used to smoke from 7 a.m. to 4 PM every day, basically. And I took stimulants. And I have found, and I'm curious to see what both your opinions on this, I have found a direct correlation between people that are ADHD and people that smoke marijuana. Like a direct correlation. I've worked with not that many people compared to you, but I've had 350 people in my Walking Away From Weed program in the last year and a half. And I would say 70% are ADHD that use marijuana because like that upper and that downer, some people don't take stimulants and they use marijuana because it focuses them in, right? It regulates their nervous system. They think it regulates their nervous system. But I have found a direct correlation between people that are ADHD and people that smoke weed and become addicted to marijuana. And I think that as time goes on, we're going to see that becoming a bigger issue. And I was just curious, like, I know it's kind of a controversial topic. I know it's a little taboo because it's like heroin and Coke and all these other things, but like In my personal experience, the weed addiction is becoming an extremely large issue, especially for adolescents, especially I I have people that are so high functioning. They're so high functioning. They could do anything and they're getting high all day. And it seems to be an overlooked topic. And I think that at least I feel like I've opened a door to it just because I've experienced it. And I'm like, am I crazy? Am I the only person here? That gets that smokes all day, and I have just found this connection, and I think it's so interesting. I was just wondering if you guys have seen that, especially as you guys work with kids, um, if you're seeing it more, or like, what is your, what do you, how do you feel about that?
0: Um, I'll I'll jump in, up okay. Jeffrey, if you don't mind. Go it, and, no, go for it. Uh, yeah. Um. So, yes, Ricky, for sure. Um. There are a lot of variables that have changed in the last thirty years. There is a kind of medicalization and now general legalization in many yeah. states of marijuana making it more available in various ways mm-hmm. more available because you can now get it on any street corner i mean in some ways in some cities you could get it pretty easily anyway but now it's it's right out there that that's a kind of physical availability that is increased yeah. there's also an availability I think on price, I think because there are so many suppliers, the the price per gram, it's hard to measure. Let's talk about how much THC is in the marijuana. The marijuana is getting a lot stronger than it ever was. It it's it's impressive how much THC has been bred into these plants. And of course now people are getting. Carts, you know, vaping type yeah. devices, carts where they, they uh, in, ingest large amounts of THC. So people are ingesting a lot of THC. Um, but there's a, but, and so in effect, it's cheaper to get a lot of THC into them now. And then the other kind of availability is uh, kind of a psychological availability. If it's made medical and legal, more people are going to think yeah like what's the big deal it's safe it's safe you know and you know in it every drug's different and all drugs have harms and all drugs have benefits people use them for the benefits so you you know they and they and they are vulnerable to underestimating the harms the harms from marijuana are particularly strong for young people yeah the harms you know the two main things that happen are the earlier someone starts and the more they use early in life. And by early, I mean, you know, anywhere under the age of 15, um, you know, but even 16, 17, uh, when they start using marijuana, but the earlier they start, the more likely they become someone who has trouble stopping. The brain is, is in effect primed to develop uh, an, an, a special interest in anything that's, a dopamine releaser and and cannabis certainly is THC certainly is but so just the Adderall. other thing what's that
1: just like Adderall
0: yeah sure absolutely i mean the mechanism is so much different but but it is a dopamine releaser nonetheless and yeah. so so we we have a lot of young people smoking and and so they're more likely to develop addiction and then particularly in boys there is absolutely for people who start certainly before the age of 20, but the data suggests that even up until age 26, there's a a significantly increased risk of developing schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder um, in people who smoke pot. And that may be for a variety of reasons, including that over the 50 years in the Danish sample that was published earlier this year, um, they, they had information from Denmark on this matter and you know the the concentration of thc in the products as i already mentioned you know went up a good bit over the 50 years um but people are especially boys there's a slightly increased risk in girls but boys in particular for reasons we don't understand are more likely to develop a psychotic illness a schizophrenia and um and 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 most people don't even think about that risk it does not appear to continue after the age of 26 um but but you know kids out there think oh it's medical it's legal I mean it was sort of the same problem with pills like OxyContin, you know that that people would get addicted to and and uh, you know overdose on and now everything has fentanyl in it but yeah. um, but people would think oh it's medical it's safe what's the big deal and yeah so. Anyway, there were there were those three elements of availability, uh, you know, physical availability. It's 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 around even more places, price availability. It's easier to get some, you know, with not that much money and psychological availability because people realize it or think mistakenly that it's completely safe. So use has gone up tremendously. And um, as as we already discussed, ADHD and ADD confer a greater risk of what uh, well. well You could sit, you could consider ADD and ADHD good for a population because the people with ADD and ADHD through the evolution of humankind might've been the people who went off and took the adventures Mm -hmm. and discovered things and were just more impulsive. And, you know, as a, as a population, it probably is good for a population to have people with ADD and ADHD as an individual, it can get in the way sometimes, you know, and, and, you know, and, and then you know, we, we have that conflict there. But anyway, yeah, I, we know that there's that connection between ADD and addiction.
1: For sure. And it's, um, I didn't know that. Like, I did not know that growing up. Mm. Like, Most I just thought don't. I was crazy. Like, I thought I was just this huge addict. Like, I didn't know that. And I think so many people don't know that. They don't know that, yes, you are addicted to this thing, but maybe... It could be a combination of all these different things. And I just think that, yeah, like I've worked with a lot of people and they'll tell me like, I stopped smoking weed. I haven't smoked in a year, but like I can have drinks, you know? And it's like, was that, is that person an addict that used to smoke 18 times a day? I don't know. Maybe that person just has bad ADHD or had a lot of trauma or just didn't know that their life could, that they could have other releases that were healthy. So I think like it's just this interesting conversation of like everyone. I think I just feel like everyone, because of the way they grow up and because of their brain, is so different. Just yeah. I wish someone had taught me about my brain growing up. I think I would have understood myself
2: more. We yeah. bring up two really important points. Um, one is the, the 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 concept of psychoeducation, right? And and I actually mentioned this in an earlier talk I had today, which was also about social emotional learning, right? That in various communities, in the family system, in schools and other places, we're really robustly talking about feelings and emotions and and people's sort of um, relationships with each other. Um, And psychoeducation, and we do a fair bit of psychoeducation in our program here as part of our group therapy curriculum. So we do our our dialectical behavioral therapy skills uh, around distress tolerance and and, and emotion regulation, mindfulness and, and interpersonal effectiveness. We do a fair bit of psychoeducation around addiction in the brain and you know, and um, um, also the social context as part of that psychoeducation that I think Dr. Collins spoke to really well. So that's really key, right? You know, knowledge is power. And while insight, to quote Dr. Collins, is somewhat overrated, it's never a bad idea to still give people that information because for a lot of folks, they can take that to the next level in terms of their engagement in treatment or whatever recovery-oriented system of support they have in order uh, to move forward. So I think like that's really key. The other point I wanted to bring up, um, re- relative to something you said, Ricky, brings me back to some of the work I did in prison reentry. Um, because I worked predominantly with young men of color, predominantly with young black men, and there was a lot of ADHD diagnoses. Oh, and really? when you scratched beneath the surface a little bit, what you tended to find was a lot of trauma that had been misdiagnosed um, because, you know, the responses to trauma um, in um, you know, difficult neighborhoods and difficult family systems um, was kind of looked a little bit like attention deficit and hyperactive yeah. disorder. But in fact, right, had more, I think, I think as, as, you know, somebody really took a look um, actually represented more um, of a trauma experience. And so I think that um, that's always something to be mindful of is really good care involves a you know a a diagnosis should point to a treatment and that diagnosis has to be very thoughtful has to be done by someone who really knows what they're knows what they're doing so that you can be as accurate as possible even in sort of the provisional nature of it you have to be as you know accurate as possible so you really can assist that person in moving forward and their consent informed consent and engagement in that process is also really important
1: yeah it's um it's interesting it's just interesting to hear all the different perspectives, but I just like, I think that like, as somebody who has just experienced it firsthand, it's just like, I always come back to like, people genuinely feel like very unsafe internally, right? Like they don't, they can't like, when like regulating their emotion, but like, you know, in my program, like I have people of all different kinds of people that are 40, 50, 30, and they've been smoking for 15, 20 years, every single day, high functioning, high. And when I ask them why they smoke, or I ask them why they always come back to, because they're bored and they're lonely. And I know it's, that's not the reason that they, that they smoke. I'm sure that that's like, if we had a cake, there's like some frosting would be bored and lonely. But like, I always tell them, I'm just like, if you really think, if you really zoom out, you've been smoking for 20 years. Like you don't, you're not smoking because you're bored and you're lonely. You're smoking because you're internally unsafe. So like your nervous system is in a state of dysregulation. And I think that like when I learned about the nervous system, it was just this crazy light bulb for me. I think especially for kids, because I think that I've had someone said to me like, Ricky, actually like, you're actually in like fight or flight mode. Like you're in a dysregulated state. 24 7 so the minute you feel something like I just have memories of like I would let's say I got broken up with which didn't happen that much but let's just say I got broken up with and it was like my body thought my mom was dying over and over and over again and like I didn't understand that I literally felt like I can't deal with this emotion smoking or something would like regulate my nervous system and so it's so interesting to me because I I think a lot of people that I work with, like, that is so surprising to them. And I'm just like, how do you not know that? Like, how how have you not learned about your nervous system? Because I feel like your nervous system is everything. Like, you've dysregulated nervous system. You're, you're like, you're living in a dysregulated state. If you're living in a dysregulated state. You're always going to use something to get into a different state. Um, and I know, I'm sure you guys touch on that in your programs, but just curious, like, how do you guys feel about, like, the importance of the nervous system? And the, and the the education of it.
2: Anyone can
0: say, take yeah. it away, Jeffrey. I've been, I've been starting first on on so many recently. Well, do you want to
2: I'll I'll start it off. I'm gonna. I, I always defer in in, in in specific medical answers to the to, to the good doctor. He is the trainer, and I do not. But I do think that like I really see substance use disorders as having a strong origin in exactly what you talked about: the desire to regulate one's emotions, to manage distress, to exist in a world that often feels like it was not built with us in mind. And, yeah. and and I think it's interesting too, because the kind of emotional impact of something like ADHD, for folks for whom it is treated or not treated is also challenges yeah. in the social environment and that includes right, um, 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 emotional dysregulation, which can yeah. be managed with something like cannabis or another substance. you know, They say that young people, you know, um, through their their early childhood, when they start manifesting with issues around attention deficit hyperactivity or other um, um, areas where they're having a difficult time regulating, that they're more prone and susceptible to substance use disorders because, in large part, they're seeking to self-medicate. And so, I think that, yeah, and in some ways, right, it seems like a no-brainer. It seems like you know, like like this is this is fairly obvious. But I think that that's such a huge component. And the other thing too, when when you study DBT 4 substance use disorder one of the issues you actually want to really address is the issue of boredom. Because that boredom is, is is a real challenge. When someone's in early recovery, regardless of the approach you're taking to treating them, you want to encourage and, and, and help them build sober networks and activities. Um, and that's why we do a lot of holistic work here. We just started doing yoga. Uh, we have an art therapist that really engages our young people both in the clinic to use their hands, but also um, sober activities, so they can have fun. So all these different ways to say, like, as you are healing, as you are building tools to regulate your emotions safely and adaptively and effectively, we also want to allow that it's going to be a learning curve for some folks. And what they need is they just need to be able to do some stuff, right? That That feels productive and that feels good.
1: Raises their dopamine because they're in a low state. Like, they're just in a low state. They're like, I'm bored. You know, it's like, I tell people I'm like go put some music on go for a walk like jump up and down like do something to like move your body because you can't change your state in that state. Well it's fair at least I find it to be very hard. Um yeah.
0: So so I think this is a great discussion. I I agree with uh, almost everything you've both said. The brain gets when when a person uses drugs regularly The brain gets used to having dopamine overcharged you know juiced and um different chemicals do it in different ways but the body and brain get used to chemically provided excess or extra dopamine and so when someone doesn't smoke or take a stimulant or whatever their drug is um, their brain doesn't have the ability to get there easily or naturally, and they've become used to having a lot more dopamine around. Dopamine mm-hmm. is, I mean, it's, it, it's too simple to call it the pleasure chemical, but but it's also not inaccurate to say, you know, it's an important component of pleasure and certain kinds of pleasure that make you want to do the thing again, like eating right. or being sexually active or using drugs um, or other things, you know, being socially involved and, uh, you know, getting getting that kind of dopamine reinforcement. But all these chemicals make a person more uh, vulnerable. And in the period of time when they're not using until their brain readjusts, which can take a couple of months, you know, Yeah. you know, often it takes, you know, several months, two, three months. There's something that's kind of evolved in in many settings, including AA that the idea of 90 days sober is really meaningful. Well, there's a physiology that points toward you know, something like 90 days. Um, So until your brain resets and gets used to doing, uh, having less dopamine and and doing things that are supposedly fun, supposed to be fun, uh, you know, whatever those things might be for a person, it takes a while to enjoy them fully cuz they're just not as much fun and i think that's yeah. part of why some people say they're bored right they're bored because they they're not used to living in a state of more usual dopamine levels right um, and it's and it is the nervous system and all that you both said about environment and and feeling safe and trauma uh I, all of that applies because people do use drugs to regulate their emotions. And once they get in that habit, they tend to want to keep doing it because it's quick and easy. Um, One of the things I wrote about recently, and it was a blog I wrote several months ago, it was basically encouraging parents to help their kids get used to tolerating distress by not giving them everything they want, by saying no, because the two-year-old who you know, has a tantrum and cries for a little while because they're in the supermarket aisle and they don't get a toy. I mean, it's not that much fun. Eventually, if they don't get the toy, you know, life will go on. It wasn't so much fun crying and throwing a tantrum. But if they get what they want all the time, not only do they get yeah, they get that hit. And they also didn't learn to tolerate distress. Right. You know, and and also, you, you know, it's interesting often the parents don't tolerate the distress of the child being in distress. And and I, you know, let me be clear. It's, regulating
1: for them. it's probably dysregulating for them.
0: It is often. And I wanna be clear, I'm not in favor of children being, you know, pained or tortured in any way, um, but you can say no to them when they want a toy, uh, yeah. you know, and and, and you know, you, you, it's a hidden blessing of not being well off financially you know if you can't buy them the toy then you can just basically say we can't afford that toy and you move on but the but it's harder for people who can afford the toy because they can make the child happy in the short term and that seems like a recipe for for you know making a happy child i actually think it's quite the opposite it's a recipe for making a child who doesn't get used to the normal pains of life and right and and by the way, you said something really, I thought very profound, Ricky. Whenever you had a breakup, I'm glad it wasn't so many. Many of us have had many breakups, but <laughs> but but um, when you uh, when you lost a relationship, it felt like you were losing, you know, that primary relationship with your mom. I thought that was so poignant, and it makes a lot of sense. And that's an unpleasant feeling, um, you know. I guess my suggestion for anyone who loses their parent at a young age is, is finding a way to help them work through it. And maybe you got that. Maybe you did get some therapy or some help, but it, you know, but it takes a long time. It casts a long shadow over a person's life.
1: Yeah. You know, I had so much support. I had so much support. I had so many resources. I had the money, I had all the things. I just, I got to say that I think the ADHD being on stimulants, a very high dose of stimulants. It was like always in a dysregulated state. It didn't really matter how many things or how much therapy I went to. It's like your brain just can't process things at a certain age. And it just gets like lost in the body. And I think that it's so true. It's like, even when I got off Adderall, like I, first of all, I couldn't get out of bed for like three weeks, Greg, right? So she's exhausted, Absolutely. but you know, I'm six months in. Right. And I'm feeling emotions I've never felt in my life. Granted, I was on it for 28 years. Like, I didn't know that I was actually, like, a very sensitive, gentle human being. I thought I was just, like, this, you know, whatever. And apparently, I have a lot of emotions. But that goes back to, like, I had to learn about about myself and about my brain and about dopamine. And, like, it's really been this eye-opening for me. Like, I'll wake up in the morning and I'll feel sad. I really – honestly, we'll feel sad. I'll wake up and I'll feel sad. And I'm like, I'm not actually sad. I'm just, my dopamine is low. And my nervous system thinks that I'm in a dysregulated, unsafe state. And so to, so, so like, I, you know, the first thing that I do is like, I don't look at my phone for the first three hours of my day. Cause I know that that dopamine hit is so overwhelming that my body is going to be chasing that all day. But to, but to go back to your point, it's like, I don't know if you guys experienced this, but some people, people go through my program. My program's only three days and I'm working on making it longer and they'll stop smoking, okay? I have a very high success rate, they'll stop smoking. But I can always tell when the person's gonna relapse. And I always say that like, when you walk away from something, when you walk away from a high, you're on another high from walking away from the high. And you're just getting another dopamine hit. It's like being on a diet. It's like so exciting and it's so great. I was like, you know that high is going to wear off. And then you're going to go for another high. And so if you don't ever learn to sit in the mundane and you don't ever learn, if you can't be self-aware enough to be like, ah, I have low dopamine right now, or like, wow, my nervous system is dysregulated, not like, oh, I need to smoke or, oh, I need to take this pill or I need to eat. And I think that that self-awareness for people, because when you separate them from their addiction, they feel like it's not about that thing. And that they can be like, Oh wait, no, I don't want to get high. I just want a high. And that distinction I think is really big for people and um, can be life changing for them to separate the thing that they want versus just the feeling that they want. And can they get that feeling somewhere else? And can they just like sit with it? I don't know if you guys do breath work with your, um, that changed my whole life breath work fundamentally changed the way that I got through getting off Adderall. Um, it's crazy. I'm sure that you guys are very, you know, well, you know,
2: even before, I think we were really engaging with the dialectical behavioral therapy, right. Which is kind of, you know, becoming, I think the central part of our, of our larger program, which includes other, other, you know, uh, you know, aspects of treatment and other, and other approaches. Um, we've always, you know, and in other places where I've worked, we've always understood that a foundation of mindfulness of being present, of 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 being able to sit with those emotions, of finding ways to um, be present and grounded, um, creates a really strong foundation. Not only for engagement in the work, right? Starting a group therapy that's going to be tough for an hour, right? You're going to talk about a lot of tough stuff. Starting that out and maybe even ending right with um, some guided imagery, some breath work, um, some mindfulness is 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 really effective. I know I use it in my personal practice just because I yeah. think it's good. It's good for me. It's good for everyone. Um, is really key. Um and again, I think it also allows us to do some other things like start to observe the world non-judgmentally, right? Yeah. Um, starting to be able to um move past those periods of sort of dopamine up, dopamine down and 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 seek to um manage ourselves. Um so that you know it's not a matter of finding the new thing as much as it is being okay with being me right now. So, so yeah, I mean, I just want to validate that. I I want to hit one point that you mentioned, because I think it's important and it's relative to the distress tolerance piece, right, which is you really hit the idea that it's incumbent in large part on parents to manage their distress. Now, I have a three and a half year old talk with Dr. Collins a lot about it. And, and, and we really do a lot of, yeah, not n- n- never being cruel, but, but, but saying, yes, no, it's not the day that you're going to get a stuffy, right. Or you're not getting ice cream today, right. It's not your turn. You know, we will go on this day and and, and so on. And, and it's really helpful. But again, I learned it's really about me yeah. being able to manage that. Now, fast forward to the parent of a 13, 15, 17 year old engaged in treatment or mm-hmm. just navigating the world of that young person experimenting or engaging in substance use, right? And I was talking to a hundred parents earlier today, and I really had to stress the point that you have to both model that emotion regulation and practice that in order for you to be present and create a safe environment in which your kid can come to you and talk about their substance use. Or you can go to them with curiosity, concern, love, and conviction, right? And say, I'm worried about this. I really want to talk to you and for that child to be able to step in because they're not worried about mom or dad freaking out, hitting them, you know, you know, go, you know, flying off the rail where they can be concerned, right? And, you know, they can have real feelings, but at the same time that they're able to present to their child in a way that really models that, um, that's super key. And it's a big part of the work that we do here in family therapy, right, is help the parents to regulate and model that. And then, and, but but set clear and consistent expectations for their kids, including that no use while they're, while, you know, um, while they're adolescents.
0: Yeah. I'm gonna, it's, um... I'm gonna pick
2: up one, two
0: points. Um, one is that one. My experience over many years suggests that the better parents are able to lovingly, kindly set limits, the 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 quicker, their young adult or adolescent child will will move along in the right direction generally i mean there are you know different situations but but i I think that's key and the other point i wanted to make was about distress tolerance which i you know and we we do uh adhere to different approaches to mindfulness and breath work can be one of them for sure um and and it it really does help people get in touch with the moment, not look forward to catastrophizing or look backward to uh, feeling terrible about things. I would say one of the best distress tolerance skills is—I'm sorry, this word might be a little triggering, but I only mean mastery: being able, being becoming a master or or expert in something, becoming really yeah, good at something, and it's so- very important. Yeah, and so the word typically historically used has been mastery, that is mastering a a subject or a a skill. It could be good being good at a sport or music or art or school or mechanics, you know, but getting good at something goes a long way to giving people those more stable and reasonable dopamine uh, responses that they need. And it also, in many cases, helps provide a livelihood. So, you know, it's good in many.
1: I think when I think of mastery, I think of, like, mastering your own, like, mastery of self-awareness. So, like, for example, I'm very ADHD. I run a business. And, like, I don't want to promote my business every day. Like, it's, you know, I just get bored. But, like, I, that's, like, for me to be able to master that emotion and be like, Ricky, you're just bored because you're ADHD and, like... It's low dopamine and like, you're just bored. And instead of being like, let's start a new business, like screw it, like we're over this or like not promoting my business for five, five days in a row. I think that is like, when you have that kind of mastery, when you're able to be like, no, this is just a part of who I am and like, it's going to ebb and flow. And so I'm going to show up anyways. Or like, I always tell my clients, like you can miss something and walk away. You can crave something and not use it. You have to master just master the emotion. Like, Oh, of course I miss this thing. Like I had it in my life forever. Like, of yeah. course I want, you want to text this person. Like I love them, but like, and I always tell them, like, I always use the word, like that makes sense. Because it makes sense that I would not want to promote my business five days in a row because it's boring. I'm bored. It makes sense that I would want to use something because I'm low dopamine. And so that has been life changing for me. Cause I can hold myself accountable Instead of being like, instead of resisting it, right? Like, oh, I I can't crave this or like, I can't miss this or I can't want this. And it's like, no, you can and you will. And it's fine. And let's master that emotion. And like, you can still make like a different choice.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, Yeah. It's been really helpful for me. And I think it's helpful. And a lot of my listeners are, you know, a lot of people you work with, I'm sure like they lack that. I always say pain is very impulsive. So we just want to get rid of it. We're like, oh, we have a cut, let's have a Band-Aid. Like, we have a feeling, let's do something to get rid of it. And so that's why I think the breath work is so important because it literally, like, takes you out of that state. And I think it's – for some people, like, they can't always talk about their feelings because talking about it just kind of relives it for them. So I always tell people, like, can you change your physical state first? And can you master that, changing your physical state? And um, it's just been really – Again, like that education for people is so, so, so important. That mastery, like you were saying.
0: Yeah.
2: There's a dialectic here, though, that I think is important because I... I trend towards concepts of mastery and discipline, right? I say to yeah. people, mindfulness is a discipline, you know, and 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 I think of my brother actually who says, if you can't meditate for a minute, meditate for an hour. Um and I always kind yes. of give him a little smirk when he says that. But 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 I think, you know, what 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 we what we say to folks is that to some extent this is work, right? If you're doing, you know, skills work around emotion regulation, if you're doing mindfulness, like you have to actually do the work. And so there's a yeah. sense of discipline and mastery there. But I love the and There's also the radical acceptance that you accept where you are in that moment. And sometimes you're not there. Right. And sometimes, you know, or you're not ready to embark on that. Right. To hold those and to say, when I'm not feeling disciplined, when I'm not feeling mastery, when I'm not feeling willing, I'm feeling willful. I can accept that that is where I'm at now. Doesn't it's not permanent it's temporary. And I ought not judge myself in that moment for not doing that thing, right? That's where we talk about the non-judgmental stance here is um, having that emotional generosity um, in that moment. Because here's the thing, you'll get there. There is virtue in the struggle, right? There's also virtue in rest. (laughs) And so I think, and and, and being able to hold both of those things. And it's funny because working with people with histories of substance use disorder they are uniquely able to handle kind of seemingly contradictory concepts at the same time. I don't know exactly. I can't always conceptualize it. They just have this way of being like, yeah, like it's not, I'm doing my best, but I can do better. It's I'm doing my best and I can do better. Right. And somehow feeling like when they can really step into their recovery, they can really understand that. So I'm just, I'm always, I'm, I'm always just so enthusiastic. Um, um, when I see people really stepping into that dialectic, um, which I think you framed really well, Ricky.
1: Thank you. Something else that I have found to be incredibly helpful. And I think that this is a hard part for parents is the relatability. I have found that the more that a child can relate to the person who's speaking the person who's experienced it, just the, the better, the The more, like, I remember I went into this treatment center recently. I did a talk and some of these people are addicted to heroin, addicted to marijuana, whatever. I shared my story and I was like very real with them. I was like, guys, I used to smoke this many times a day. I used to do this. I used to do that. And there was like, they came up to me after and they were just like, thank you for making us not feel like we were different. Like, thank you for like just being so real about it and being like, yeah, like that was me. And there is this, this like, I think therapists and doctors and parents and they're all amazing, but there's something about the relatability to a kid that I feel like is invaluable. And I think the more people can like infuse that into the treatment, like bringing people in, I know AA does that, but just like someone closer to their age that is like, Hey, I was you. Like, I get it. Like I get why you want to do it. And, and look at what you can become, look at where you can go. That just seems to be like because I've had a lot of people in my program that have gone to therapy, have gone to rehab, gone to, th- gone to all these things. I'm i I'm pretty much a last resort for people. I'm not offended by it. It's fine. But I just like, they come into my program and they're like your last resort. And I'm like, why did you sign up? They're like, because I, I, I literally lived your story. And so I just think the story part of treatment is so key too. Um, And I wonder if like, you know, I'm sure that you guys do that, but I found that to be super helpful. Like even when I was getting off Adderall, talking to someone who literally just got off Adderall was like, gave me like this like beacon of hope of like, okay, if this person can do it, like I can do it. And they weren't like a psychiatrist or a therapist, like they didn't know, but they had lived it. And for me, there's something about the lived experience that is just invaluable.
2: The credible messenger is a really important component. And so in the work we do, um, peer services, peer support. Right. i um, someone who's living a lifestyle recovery, can speak to a young person. And I like to think of it as part of a really helpful multidisciplinary team. Right. You know, between a psychiatrist and a therapist and a peer and a sponsor. Right. And a mentor. All these different people have something to bring. Right. And if we're all rowing in the same direction. And if the young person is motivated to utilize those relationships, I think yeah. that's key. You know, I'll speak for myself and maybe Dr. Collins has, has a similar view, but like when I was younger, I related to to, to clients. I've typically only worked with young people in my career. Um, and I, you know, I I found ways to relate, um, to be relational while also being appropriate, while also being boundaried, um, you know, and as I got older, as I lost my hair, um, you know, as I, <laughs> had a family and so forth. I've had to shift my the relational dynamic in terms of how I I, I engage folks, right? Because I still want to be appropriately authentic. Um, and I think that even the folks with letters after our names, I think we do seek to appropriately use our experiences along with the other approaches we have. But I agree, there is, I think, a, an important and unique element to, to, to a credible messenger um, who can really speak to somebody's experience. Um, and and i tend to think that however the composition of that team is or maybe it's just that person right yeah. that you know as yeah. long as i think we're 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 engaging that person um and being centered in that person's experience i think that we can you know we we can help to facilitate their growth
1: 100% i totally agree
0: let let me offer a, an alternative perspective it won't it won't uh, surprise anyone i think given that i'm the old guy in the room um <laughs> but You're not old. um Yeah. well thanks but but i mean um i think there are people who really want to know that the person they're talking to has been through something similar has you know is is in recovery early recovery wherever it is um you know that can really relate to what they've gone through what i discovered through my career and and i guess i i started this way and and realized that this was the only way to work in this field um i think the key elements are not to be judgmental and to mm-hmm. recognize and people who've been there aren't judgmental because they you know they get it right? they're not going to be judgmental of someone who yeah. is doing right now the things they weren't doing all that long ago or maybe it even was long ago but i think being non-judgmental and being um accepting that of something obvious that a lot of people don't get but that people use substances for good reasons maybe they can yeah. use them for not so good reasons but but they use them for reasons that work for them in the moment and if you start with that i mean that's sort of ingrained in who i am i don't judge people for using i you know they yeah. people do all kinds of things and they're welcome to Um, you know, they're coming to me to figure out if they want to make a change, how to make that change if they do, you know, and whatever that change might be. But I've found that, you know, when people ask me like, oh, are you, are you in recovery? And I, I don't answer. I mean, I tell them, I say, you know, what I've discovered is that whether I am or not, I surely know a whole lot about your experience and the experience of many people who've gone through similar things. And, you know, I, I, I understand, and I don't sit in judgment and I'm here to help you figure out what you want to do. And, and that's all, you know, and, and most people accept that. And then some people, you know, say, Oh, I think you probably did. And others say, you know, you know, no, I'm sure you never did. And, you know, obviously the truth is, you know, somewhere in there, but, you know, or maybe between those, but either way, um, you know, I just don't get into it because yeah. I, I, I mean, again, you know, it's not a bad thing that some people rely on it um, or, or it helps like it helps people relate to you. No question. I'm sure Ricky, no question. Um, so, you know, but the key elements, I think people in recovery already do they're nonjudgmental. They're accepting. They get that the drugs do something positive. Yeah. For That's why they're, you know, the people who are using aren't idiots. You know, they're doing, they're doing something that works in the short term. So, yeah. And so people in recovery automatically, or, you know, in early recovery, wherever they are, uh, get that.
1: Right. That makes sense.
0: Uh, yeah. E- either way, I'm so sorry. I I don't know how much time more. No, you're we- good. We
1: can wrap this up. Let's wrap it up.
0: I have to. I, I thank you for yeah. <laughs> It's a pleasure to talk to you and interesting. Thank you.
1: Of course. Thank you guys so much um, for being on the show. And I'll put all the information about the New York Center for Living and both of you. And this was really great. And thank you so much. My listeners are going to learn a ton.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Ricky. Really appreciate it.
1: Of course. All right, right, guys. Have a good one.
2: too. Bye.